am super excited to be here with you this morning. I've been waiting for this for months. I've heard so many wonderful things about this community for, um, for at least a couple of years. I um, am dear friends with people who've come and spent time with you before, and the fact that I get to be here with you too is just thrills me. So I'm just grateful to be here with you. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Um, the fact that these bodies of ours have gotten such a bad rap just makes me sad. As I was sitting over there watching these precious children over here in their costumes um, playing with each other and then thinking about how we grow up and are, you know, just have a hard time playing like that, just made me sad, you know? So anyway, the fact that we get to talk about this today and tomorrow, even too, um, and the fact that we're doing it in a church just thrills me. <laughs> I always feel like I'm just being a little subversive, you know? So anyway, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Um, I'd like to begin today's talk by reading a poem titled Aria by Delmar Swartz. This poem speaks to me about sexual shame and God's desire to bring love and healing to our lives through our sexuality. Kiss me there, where pride is glittering. Kiss me where I am ripened and round fruit. Kiss me wherever, however, I am supple, bare, and flare. Let the bell be rung as long as I am young. Let ring and fly like a great bronze wing until I am shaken from blossom to root. I'll kiss you wherever you think you are poor, wherever you shudder feeling stripped and bared, because you think you are bloodless, skinny, or marred, until until your gaze has been stilled, until you are shamed again no more. I'll kiss you until your body and soul, the mind in the body being fulfilled, suspend their dread and civil war. Henry Nouwen, in his book, Life of the Beloved, says this, the greatest gift my friendship can give you is the gift of your belovedness. I can give that gift only insofar as I have claimed it for myself. Isn't that what friendship is all about? Giving to each other the gift of our belovedness? Yes, there is that voice. The voice that speaks from above and from within and whispers softly or declares loudly, you are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. It certainly is not easy to hear that voice in a world filled with voices that shout, you are no good, you are despicable, you are ugly, you are worthless, you are nobody, unless, of course, you can prove the opposite. These voices are so persistent that it is easy to believe them. That's the great trap. It's the trap of self-rejection. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us 
beloved. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. This talk is going to take us on a journey to understand the messages that have infiltrated our traditional Christian teachings as well as the ideas that inform our culture and how those ideas have helped and hindered our discovery of God's gift of sexuality, sensuality, pleasure, and our body. Each of us have absorbed ideas that have historical origins that have woven together particular overt and covert messages about gender, sexuality, delivered to us through our family, extended family, community, and all while growing up. Have you ever found yourself wondering about some of the messages you absorbed from your family, from your church community, or from your culture? If so, what has come to mind? Are you aware of ideas or assumptions that have been confusing or problematic for you? Or how they have affected your faith and your sexuality? Perhaps you join a silent chorus of thousands of lovely, faith-filled people who seek clarity, reconciliation, wisdom, guidance, and grace in their sexual lives. They stand at the well awaiting the penetrating love grace and inspiration of a loving God, along with the erotic rush of appreciation. For almost 30 years, I have treated and taught people in their teens through their 20s, or excuse me, through their 70s, and not 20s. <laughs> and though so much has changed in our culture, what and how sexuality is discussed in the traditional Christian church is surprisingly the same. In fact, I have seen, if I have seen any trend in the last 40 years, it is that those in their 20s and 30s who grew up in conservative church communities or in abstinence-only schools describe an even more rigid, condemning, and fear-based message about sexual desire, their bodies, and sexual behaviors than was present in the 60s and 70s. Let me first explain the common messages or themes that seem most prevalent when Christians tell me about what they learned growing up regarding sexuality. The ministry of Jesus and the new covenant of Christ provided a scaffolding for a life built on faith, justice, love, mutuality, equality, and care for those less fortunate. His radical ministry called into accountability all forms of misused power instituted by religious and political leaders that marginalized, abused, or discounted those not in power. The poor, women, children, the ill and disabled, and those of other races and creeds. He taught that all people were both precious creations of God and in part foolish in need of humility and grace. Time and again, we see Jesus' guidance and grace as he walked with those who sought his company, the woman at the well, the woman brought for stoning, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet, Peter, the man next to him on the cross, just to name a few. And if we talk to those who have followed Christ through their lifetime, we gather countless stories of how Jesus is still guiding and teaching through his love and grace. So often in my own life, 
I have been amazed in retrospect at the patience of God, the gentle prodding, the company in suffering, the wisdom born in pain, the strength to keep learning when my heart was tempted to close. In my life, I have witnessed how a faith built on ruthless trust in God's love, grace, and justice has not only been my salvation, but has been the avenue of healing, restoration, and freedom in the lives of so many people who have deeply suffered. Though I didn't always agree with how the organized church espoused or demonstrated the revelations of God or the teachings of Jesus, I did see the power of his love all around me. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. On the other hand, each year through countless counseling sessions and through stories from graduate family therapy students, I would experience heartbreak after heartbreak over the pain and suffering in people's sexual lives. While some of this suffering originated from situations that they had found themselves in, what seemed pervasive for many of the Christians was how a lack of sexual understanding, support, hurtful assumptions, and shame had perpetuated a deep distrust in their own body and in their sexuality. And for many heterosexuals, a deep, deep distrust in the other gender even when they were partnered. Origins in sexual suffering seem to emerge from three primary avenues. The families people grew up in that were silent and punitive about sexual curiosity, natural sexual curiosity, and a culture that saw sex and bodies as a product for purchase, a thing to be used for individual pleasure without care to the effect on the person or on the relationship. A message sold primarily as a man's message that women were to accommodate to. As if sex was for men, but the responsibility to be the objects of pleasure was a woman's. Add to this the church's message that sexual desire or behavior is immoral prior to or outside of marriage. The themes recurred. Men and women feeling ashamed of their sexual desires, thoughts, and experiences. Long histories of seeing sexual desire as something wrong or impure about them. Women with a sense of disdain for their bodies, how they looked, their desire or lack of desire, what they had done or not done, Men with a sense of entitlement around sex, shame for how they had behaved in secret or prior to marriage or partnership, shamed for what they had not done, disappointment in their sexual relationship or a sense of confusion and naivete about how to love, touch, or what to expect from their sexual relationship with their partner. Both men and women felt not only ill-prepared to be a fulfilling and fulfilled lover. But the years of wanting, shaming, repressing, sexual touch, recreational sex, longing and objectifying sex and bodies had left them at odds with their body, their partner's body, and at odds with their faith. 
The gnawing question seemed to be, is there a greater purpose in sex? Or is it merely about feeling good in the moment or fulfilling some expectation in partnership? Let's make this more personal. What were the ideas you got from your family, your church community, your friends, your culture, that helped you develop a deeply satisfying sexual life as you grew up? What ideas did not? What ideas helped you understand the paradox in desire, the desire you feel at the onset of a relationship, but then how desire evolves as a relationship matures? What ideas or lack of ideas did not? What does intimacy mean to you? Emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, physical intimacy. What do you do to foster intimacy with yourself, with your God, with your partner? What are the ideas that allow sexual expression to involve all of your senses, all of your love, all of your attention, and be deeply spiritual and deeply erotic at the same time? And conversely, what are the ideas that actually inhibit this? Or worse, nearly guarantee dissatisfaction and frustration. These and hundreds of other valuable questions have been buried under thousands of years of a sexual ethic that did not explore questions, but instead simply dictated, don't have sex until you are married, period. No information, no education about bodies, about relationships, about intimacy, about relational development, about choosing well, or about the spiritual practice of attachment and love. Here are the themes repeated in the vast majority of sexual stories that I hear. One, sex was a silent and reactive topic in my family while I was growing up. I never knew what I was getting in trouble for, only that it and I was bad. Two, sex was to be saved for marriage. That was all I needed to know. Three, agape was the only form of love that was truly Christian. Everything else didn't count <laughs> or worse. Four, be morally pure. That, of course, was never defined, and it was absolutely unattainable. <laughs> Remember the quote from Henry Nouwen? Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the Christian life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls you beloved. Each of those messages guarantee self-rejection. In 2017, Dr. Noel Clark did research to establish our very first operational definition of sexual shame. And here's what she found out. And this is what we see in our offices. Sexual shame is the visceral feeling, that means in your body, 
visceral feeling of humiliation and disgust toward one's own body and identity as a sexual being and a belief of being abnormal, inferior, and unworthy. This feeling can be internalized, but also manifests in interpersonal relationships. It means inside and between, having a negative impact on trust, communication, and physical and emotional intimacy. Sexual shame develops across the lifespan with interactions with interpersonal relationships, one's culture and society, and subsequent critical self-appraisal. So what's that saying is the minute you discover that happy place between your legs, that is before you're verbal. Okay, that's 10 months, 8, 9, 10 months old. Okay, you're getting your diapers changed. And someone smacks your hands away. And then that happens or something similar hundreds of times. That's across the lifespan. And you develop that internal voice that says something's wrong with me. And then it happens again. Okay. This is how we get that internal critic that I'm bad. And then it gets reinforced over and over again. Okay. So you just need to see how big that is. So the, the definition goes on to say, there is also a fear and uncertainty related to one's power or right to make decisions, including safety decisions related to sexual encounters along with an internalized judgment toward one's own sexual desire. Has anybody here read Peggy Ornstein's book, Girls and Sex, came out in 2017, navigating the, okay, navigating the new landscape? Peggy Ornstein uh, quoted a study in there. Peggy uh, interviewed 80 girls ages 15 to 22. She quoted a study in there um, where uh, girls can be powerful in every area of their life, every area, making decisions, all kinds of things, until they get ready to go out. And then they're putting down three, four, and five shots of hard liquor because they do not know that they can keep themselves safe or that they have the right to. And these are not girls with religious backgrounds. This is the Me Too movement that is across the United States. Okay? We have so much rampant sexual shame um, in the United States, it, and it's because we have not had comprehensive sex education forever. We had some in the 60s and 70s, and then we wiped it out beginning in the 80s. Okay? Um, we have created this. To add to this vague and unwavering message is the added covert message that your body is a thing to be owned and pronounced worthy or not by someone else. How is this similar, dissimilar to Christ's message to the woman at the well in John 4? 
In conservative religious homes, when kids are taught strict messages of purity, sexual shame often manifests in further complex ways. Because of their very healthy and normal sexual desires, thoughts, and actions, youth believe God sees them as unworthy too, as damaged goods. Believing they are perverted, they feel that they have nowhere to turn where they will not be judged. They go underground with their sexuality and in their silence are left with only what culture, free pornography, and media have to offer. This is far too often their only platform for building a sustainable, intimate partnership. The author and public theologian Thomas More said this, Body and spirit marry in the chapel of the soul. They marry every minute of every day in all their activities and in all their inactivity, in all their thoughts and all their actions, or they marry not at all. If they don't marry, we do not know sexuality with soul, and therefore our sexuality remains incomplete and insufficiently human. We do not find the soul of sex by spiritualizing the body but by coming to appreciate its mysteries and by daring to enter its sensuousness. I am a believer that God has given us everything we need to understand and appreciate in the sacred gift of our sexuality, in the stories, studies, and sacred writings of the Old and New Testament. We have a wealth of knowledge to study and to distill with God's help that assist us to live the life we were created to live. But as I sought to learn about God's deepest hopes and purposes in sexual desire and the sexual fulfillment inside Christian history, I kept hitting concrete walls with harsh mandates and trite explanations. I believed God had given us what we needed, but I kept asking myself, where was it hiding? So out of my usually useful Swedish stubbornness, that's of course if you don't ask my husband if it's useful, I set out to explore Jewish history, writing and wisdom on sexuality. I knew that the vast majority of the sexual pain, shame, and naivete that I witnessed in the hundreds of faithful young Christian men and women did not come from the sexual ethic built on the life and ministry of Jesus. If it did, people would have learned of the purpose of sexuality, about their sexual feelings and curiosities, been given teachings to help them desire what was possible for them in committed partnership, and probably most of all, would feel in their learning, in their discussions, in their learning experiences, God's deep love, acceptance, and grace. They would grow in fullness, knowledge, and love, not shame, condemnation, and self-righteous attitudes towards others. They would know their belovedness, even in their sexuality. But it was deep-seated shame and naivete that I witnessed in 80 to 90% of the sexual stories of the people that I treated and taught. So it was out of that determination that I set out to discover the rich history of the Hebrew people and their relationship to God and sexuality. I believed that the Yahweh of the Hebrew people and the incarnate God in Christ 
must have offered us more than the sexual ethic that was distilled and mandated on the Christian people after 300 AD. I could not accept that so many of the other leading religions of the world, Hindi and Buddhism, for example, had centuries of sacred writing on how, when entered into intentionally, the sexual relationship between loving partners could be deeply spiritual, a deeply spiritual form of worship. While the Christian church had nothing other than the message, don't have sex before marriage and do after. I set out to study our ancestors, excavating their stories, beliefs, and struggles to understand God's intention in sexuality. While not a Hebrew scholar, after reading several books and talking to Hebrew scholars, not only do I have an enormous amount of respect for the complexity, beauty, and rich history of their people and the wealth of diversity in their sacred writings, but I found magnificent stories of God's use of sexuality and sexual imagery to show people the depth of his love and devotion. Since we're limited on time, I'm just going to share one of the old wisdoms with you. You're going to have to come back tomorrow night if you want to hear several more, or you're going to read, have to read them in my book. Um, so this is a mystic Jewish tale that takes place in Jerusalem, roughly 500 BC. Now that's almost 200 years before Plato and Aristotle first pit the mind against the body. And that's really where a lot of our problems began. Um, it gives us our first peek into the early Jewish mystics, how the Jew, early Jewish mystics understood the power and purpose of sexual desire and how they managed their fear of the force inside. Okay, here's how it goes. The masters of the day were distressed. Adultery was spreading rampant, rampant as plague amongst the people. The authorities were at a loss as to how to curb its powerful drive. Finally, driven to desperation, they began to pray. For three days they fasted, weeping and pleading with God, let us slay the sexual drive before it slays us. Finally, God acquiesced. The masters then witnessed a lion of fire leap out from within the temple's holy of holies. A prophet among them identified the lion as the personification of the primal sexual drive. They sought to slay the lion of fire, but the result was that for three days thereafter, the entire society ground to a standstill. The hens did not lay eggs. The artists ceased creating. Businesses faltered. And all spiritual activity came to a halt. Realizing that the sexual drive was about more than sex, that it somehow echoed with the divine, the masters relented. They prayed that only its destructive shadow be removed while retaining its creative force. 
Their request was denied on high with the insightful response. You cannot have only half a drive. The greater the sacred power of equality, the greater its shadow. The two are inseparable. So they prayed that the lion at least be weakened and their prayer was granted. The lion less potent, but no less present, re-entered the Holy of Holies. We see in this lovely Jewish story the power, paradox, and dilemma in sexual desire. The Jewish teachers could see that while the drive was forceful and needed management, the core drive in sexual desire was at the heart of all creative endeavors. Our drive to create relationships, to create ways of service, beauty, and enlightenment are all part of the core human desire to live meaningful, meaningfully, to live with a capital L. When we let our core desires find expression in loving and just ways, we participate in the creative process that is the image of God within us. We are the only created creature with drives to create complex relationships with deep, intimate bonds. This is the face of the image of God within us. Is it powerful? Yes. Desires can be very powerful. Do we need God's guidance and wisdom to discern and decipher? Yes. We do, after all, look in a mirror dimly. But are our core desires and drives a gift from God? Most certainly, yes. Another subtle but important point in this story that is echoed throughout many other Jewish stories is how the lion of sexual desire comes out of the temple's holy of holies. This is where the presence of God, the Shekinah, is said to reside. This is one of the many affirmations of, in Jewish sacred writings where we see the eros of desire originating with God, even our sexual desire. Tomorrow night, I will share several other stories that will literally knock your socks off. They knocked my socks off when I found them. I would be places like camping and reading all these Jewish tomes, and I would read stories, honestly, and I would say, I can't tell anybody what I've just read. They won't believe me. I must find them in three other texts before I can say this out loud because I had never found these stories before. One of the stories I will share tomorrow night is called The Vow of Ona. It is a series of sexuality guidelines that you can literally run your relationship by your dating life by or raise your children by. And they are, <clears throat> excuse me, all sex positive. I think we've been waiting for these our whole life and we never knew they were there and they're thousands of years old. There is much to learn from our ancestry and from the life and ministry of Jesus. So much more than offering silence or being told what not to do. We must begin to develop a sexual ethic and sexual curriculum that can be open, grace-filled, grace-filled in its dialogue, to take responsibility for the vulnerability that we have created by leaving culture to teach our youth about sexuality. 
and share the vision and capacities in God's gift of sexual desire and sexual intimacy. At the heart of this study of romance, sexuality, and spirituality is the understanding that our created nature is to know that God calls us beloved and to know that our call from God is to love, to live love, to be love, and to stand up for love. I don't know about you, but when I listen deeply to the sexual pain of our people and see the opportunity we have to impart a much-needed integration of sexual health with our belovedness in God, I think time is well overdue. We cannot afford to see and hear this pain and cower from this invitation to responsibility that we bear in ourselves and in our children. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> our God and our creator, you are all life and all love. And you call us beloved. Help us, Lord, to have the capacity now and each day to catch a glimpse of your deep love for us and a capacity to see the gifts you have given us in our body, in our senses, and in our hearts. Help us to listen deeply as you sing to us and call us toward love, toward justice, toward mercy, toward grace, and toward those places of fulfillment and happiness where we share this wealth of gifts with others who are hungry to know love and grace too. Help us to see our bodies and our abilities to love with our bodies as an extension of this loving gift from you. Help us to shed the lies that any part of our body is bad or nasty or not good enough. Help us to see it is all an extension of your gift of love to us and an avenue of love for us. Bless us, Lord, as we seek to rid ourselves of sexual shame and to live freely in this sweet gift of your love. Amen.